Hello, I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns-Walker. Today, we welcome you back to the Butterfly Forecast. My life is a spike with pain and music is my aeroplane. It's my aeroplane. Somber, sweet and sour, Jane, and music is my aeroplane. It's my aeroplane. Spike with pain. On this episode of the Butterfly Forecast, we are joined by our good friend, John Gray. John is a co-founder of the Bronx-based collective Ghetto Gastro. If you've ever seen or experienced one of Ghetto Gastro's food presentations, it's literally like art. John, after having a somewhat tumultuous upbringing, found a calling in fashion and since then has combined food with art and design. His collective of Ghetto Gastro with his partners have created many a table big enough for everyone to sit at, encouraging and cultivating conversations about inclusion and race and economic empowerment, just to name a few. Literally traveling the world and taking the Bronx to the world and introducing the world to the Bronx. In this episode, John talks a little bit about his why. We hope you enjoy it. We sure did. Talk, John. Bing bong. Ted talk mode. Ted mode. Ted mode. <laughs> Speaking of which, I just watched your, rewatched your TED talk today. Actually, it was the first time I watched it. Well, I was there, which was the best, but mm. it was the first time I watched the video since it came out. Like when it first, when they released it, I watched it and then I haven't seen it since, but it just put me right back into that auditorium. And I remember being so proud of you, even though I was so scared you weren't going to be able to pull it off. Yeah, Mel, Mel was the first person I, I practiced for. She was like, you got to start over, though. <laughs> John, you know, that's really testament. That experience was so such a testament to who you are. Like he had practiced. He was practicing the TED Talk. And it was what? Two days before you were supposed to deliver the talk? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like two days. It two, was three two, days, maybe three. Maybe three, right? And a TED Talk is huge. Like, people work their whole lives to do a TED Talk, or, you know, it's just like a really big deal. They practice, they have coaches. It's like <laughs> there's books on it. Like, people read books, like, how to do a TED Talk. Oh, shit. So, John was like, hey, will you listen to me? Like, you know, my rough draft or whatever. And I was like, sure. And he did it for me and my heart dropped. Like after he did it, I was like, oh my God, he's gonna make us all look bad. They finally <laughs> let all the all the immigrants and the black people in and now he's just gonna like ruin it for all of us. <laughs> and then two days later, you delivered it effortlessly. Like the fact that you had memorized all of that and the sequence in which you put it in and like the concise way you delivered like such big themes in like one sentence each, it was the most incredible thing. Like I've, I, I felt like I was at a hip hop concert cheering for you that day in that auditorium. That's what's up. That's what's up. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was good. I, I often approach a lot of things with a lack of preparation, but then sharpen it up for it's time to um, really, really, really deliver. Is that because you get a feel for it and you're then you jump on it and then you, you're already prepared from, you know, whatever made you say yes? 
Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with procrastination and just like that being a part of my process. But also like the TED, like Mel was saying, like I never really dreamed of doing a TED talk. But then like in the weeks coming up to it, I was like, all right, I got to do this thing. So I didn't really start working on it until like right before. The thesis of what I was saying was challenged because right before it was time to do the TED Talk, Nipsey Hussle was murdered and he was like a shining example of the type of work and the, and the, the thesis I wanted to discuss. But then him getting murdered really challenged that thesis. So it really shook me. So I felt like I really had to believe it again. You know, I had to, I had to start believing what I was saying. So a, a lot of it was like getting back to that truth. I think that's true. A lot of times when you prepare to do something groundbreaking, there's something else that gets in the way and you realize what you have to do is like kind of own why you're there in the first place, which may not be what the agenda is. And I, I love your process. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I was telling Mel earlier that it seems like you have this energy that you bring to things, like regardless of what it is. I told her you've you've made the Bronx like the future UN. Well, that's I like I like that. I might have to put that on my manifesto. But 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 yeah, I think I think that's the vibe. You know, figuring out ways of connection, um, really thinking about sovereignty and mutual aid, and and just like building using using the tools we have to, to hopefully create some type of substantial, sustainable change that affects the loved ones, my siblings, the people I care about, so all humankind. Well, can I ask you, like, how it seems like wherever you go, whether you're bringing people to the Bronx or you're bringing the Bronx to the people, you have this huge receptacle about you that brings threads together. It makes all threads work together, you know, rather than be like, no, you got to be over here and no, you don't work with this. And it's like you bring the synergy that I really think that's the missing ingredient with so many community building efforts, you know, have you always been conscious of community? You know what? I, I don't think I was really conscious to it as these, like you said, you use the word threads, but as as these threads were being woven into the tapestry that I would say is my personhood or my life. But when I when I look back, like a lot of the things that I wasn't able to pr appreciate from my upbringing um, with my family, it was really just about putting me in places. I was like in, in a lot of different environments that didn't necessarily fit or go together, but I always felt a sense of comfort in each one, but also then feeling a sense of, I don't want to know if displacement is the word, but also not fitting in. So the fact that I, like my mother, I, I grew up, we lived in public housing in Harlem, and then I, I would go to like the 92nd Street Wire, right? And I learned how to make dreidels and, and lockers and a cookbook. So it's like just seeing people as people. And my, my best friend, my first best friend was this Korean kid named Kobe that was adopted by like Jewish parents that lived in Riverdale in the Bronx, you know? So, but he was born in Korea. So I think like having, having just seeing people as people and like having different experiences, but also realizing some of the deficits that certain people were experiencing in their day to day as I like navigated different, different parts of the world. And also just, I think growing up and being raised by educators, you know, they were always about, the social, the social education, experiential learning, 
and these type of things. So I think having a, a, a value for different different places and spaces and, and wanting to be able to kind of create space where I felt comfortable, which is like an amalgam of these different worlds, is kind of what enabled me like with the superpower to kind of move through spaces, not necessarily shape-shifting, but space-shifting. Because I don't really change where I'm at, like depending on where I'm at, but I think spaces kind of shift to fit what, what needs to go to, what needs to go go on, you know. So I don't know if I just was talking in a very abstract way, but <laughs> but the in real concrete with real concrete things, I mean, food changes space. Food changes space radically. You know, I remember as a child, my dad's an artist, and I used to go, have to go with him when he was creating something to his studio in the city, and. Um, People would come in and comment or a welder or whatever. And all day I'd be in this like warehouse. And then I would think, doesn't anybody eat? <laughs> like, doesn't any, like, where's the food? It's not warm in here. It's so cold. We're just talking about metal. Like, when are we going to talk about like, hey, wanting to drink? Who are you? What's going on? No. And I remember thinking, oh, this place needs food. Nah, yeah, I think nourishment is just it's it's a it's a very important part of the human experience. It's something that we definitely need. It's a vehicle for communion, um, connection, family, like a a sense of comfort, you know. So it's not just a biological need. I think it's also like our creature comforts and social needs as humans, and as we come together, like to have those moments to 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 come convene and commune, you know? Wait, so John, were you born and raised in the Bronx? I was born in the Bronx. I moved to Harlem, I think from, I was in Harlem for like five or six years from like the ages of two to eight. Then I moved back to the Bronx and I've been there since. Like I've dipped out a little bit, like I've like lived in Harlem as an adult. I've lived in like the West Village. Like I've bounced around, but I've always kept my spot uptown. So I've always had a Bronx address since I was eight years old. What did you love most about being in the Bronx? Like, what was it that, because it, it feels like you love it like a friend. What made you fall in love with it to always, like, it feels like you bring it everywhere you go with you. You always go back to it. You know, it's funny because growing up, like, like I was mentioning earlier, a lot of the things that you take for granted or don't fully understand or to appreciate, you know, are things that you you come as you have more life experience and like understand the true value of things. I think from my my coming of age, what I really appreciated where I grew up in the Bronx was like it was an urbane environment, but with a great access to nature. It was a diverse community. So all different types of flavors and vibes like a lot of immigrant culture so you know again different flavors and vibes and culture so like being able to have a snapshot of other other ways people live was definitely valuable for me but then like when i think about the whole bronx to the world and where that kind of was born from you know the ego the ego really like growing up in new york where you from like where who you repping all, all of that things like people always have a lot of slander on the Bronx and I felt like the Bronx never got its respect for being a hub for creativity so I was like all right we're gonna just fly this flag because honestly growing up when I was really young people considered me a cat from Harlem and because like a lot of my friends were in Harlem I went to church in Harlem so like again like not having a place like because people in Harlem my friends in Harlem were like hey, this Bronx dude and 
Harlem, like the Bronx cast is like, are you being in Harlem? You're not even from like so it's always like this limbo <laughs> is I, I guess part of my part of my life story. But but yeah, I just wanted to rap because you know Brooklyn and Harlem was just getting so much shine. And we gotta talk that talk globally for the for the town, for the BX. It feels more like purpose than ego because mm. you bring it with you everywhere. It's not just like a New York thing. Like you travel the world and you bring it with you everywhere. So do you feel like it's part of your purpose to to sort of like bring that to the world? Well, yeah, I think the Bronx, when I say the Bronx, is really a stand-in for communities that have been divested in and, and and where structures of systemic oppression have been in place and are in place and have been in place for generations. So the Bronx could be a favela in, in Rio. It could be a ward in, in New Orleans. Like, like when I think of spots that have been neglected and, and forgotten, that's what I think. Because the Bronx does have an international reputation, right? So like people hear the Bronx and they think a thing. Usually that's poverty, right? Sometimes it's hip hop and art movements that were, that came from the Bronx, but it's like it's usually like that's like a place you don't want to go when the when the when the sun sets. Ultimately, like when I talk about the Bronx to the world, it's really like wanting to shine light and illustrate that you could be from a place like. And granted, like I understand, like even in the United States, in poverty stricken areas, it's still some privilege more than like someone that's growing up in the in the slum in Mumbai, right? Like they might not have the same opportunities or access to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, even though that's not even real, but that's a whole nother TED talk. But when we when we talk about that, it's like just being able to like think about things that have been undervalued in the context of society, but being able to look and see the treasure that that lies within the rubble. So so that's that's what it's about for me you know, like shining light on the beauty and trying to socially scope folks to think that or have an understanding like, yeah, that what you are is valuable, where you're from is valuable, and you have reference points that can be valuable and create value in, in the world and maybe in the marketplace, you know. It even seems like you've made the concept of the Bronx, like wherever you've traveled, and you've brought the flavor of the Bronx with you and the culture of the Bronx. It's almost like it's become a medicine, like the Bronx is a medicine you're delivering throughout the world. You know, like what is it you get to see as a result? It seems where you say the Bronx, people light up. What's it? What is that medicine? Well, yeah, it's funny that you say medicine, especially my prior livelihood. My prior. <laughs> but I think for me, like one of the things I really take from the Bronx and like we use as a beacon of inspiration is the ability to take things that don't traditionally go together and and create a new vernacular with those things. It's like like hip hop producers or producers were sampling, like they were like taking James Brown and doing the break beats and taking this and drums from Boogaloo or like all of these things that like didn't traditionally go together, but they created a new vernacular with these disparate things. So ultimately that's what we're doing. Like when we're taking whatever we know from architecture, culture, fashion, you know, thinking about the tapestry of all the beautiful cultures and that people have traveled to and ended up in the Bronx, like from the Vietnamese, the, the Bengali, the Trinidadian, Jamaican, you know, it's like, it's like, so like thinking of flavors that come from these places and, putting them together, like the sounds, like bringing energy from the streets, but to, to maybe high fashion or 
like high art, you know? So, so thinking about all these things, it's like, we don't believe in highbrow, lowbrow. Like we just take a unibrow approach and just try to do dope shit. That's the Persian approach, the unibrow. <laughs> you know, I had, to, I had to throw that in there for you, man. You know, that was the alley you frankly. Oh, I had the biggest unibrow ever. That just means that, that your chakras are aligned, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I used to say, I believe in, in oneness of mankind, like my unibrow. <laughs> my unibrow. That's cool. Is that why you named yourself Ghetto Gastro? Well, Ghetto Gastro, you saw I just woke up from a nap before this, this podcast, before this pod. So a lot of great ideas rain down, descend upon me from the heavens during my nap time. So I just woke up with the name. Do you know Trisha Hersey? <laughs> I don't. I don't. You don't? Oh, my God. The Nap Bishop? Oh, is, does she do the Nap Ministry? Is that her thing? Yes. yes. All right. So my one of my colleagues and good friends, Osai, has been trying to get me the Nap Ministry sermons for a long time, but it's like rest as resistance, right? Yep. Trying to be in, be in descendants of enslaved yes. people in America and our labor being free for so long and living in bondage that it's, it's revolutionary to rest. Yes. So you're yeah. you're already doing it. You're already napping and getting the information through. The ancestors are getting yes. the, the intel, for sure. So so yeah, that ghetto gastro came like that. It was actually ghetto gastronomy. And I texted to my boy, Larry Osei, and he's like, yeah, hit him with the ghetto gastro. And then I liked the way it lined up. And I always like polarizing like art. You know, I feel like art should make you feel something. So that that's kind of like our, our critical contemporary approach like you know like let's come into the game i remember i was asking people what they think about oh, i don't know that's kind of especially being like from the streets and, and having a street kind of aesthetic in a way especially like we're 10 years in now so folks was like i don't know but we just went with it and here we are you know gg at the met you know we, we, we just try to bend the world to our will yeah fht force hustle tactics <laughs> I love that. No, I love it so much just because the word ghetto has had such a, a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. I, I love the redefining of it in different spaces and the almost like the reclamation of it in a lot of ways. And that's that's what it's about. That's what it's all about. Just you know, giving a different context to the word ghetto, right? And it's like, again, things that don't go together. You don't really see ghetto and gastronomy, right? As two things that fit in the same phrase or sentence or you know name so we wanted to kind of bring bring that same energy it's powerful and it also is testimony it's like another barrier buster you know moving away from identifying people with wherever they're born people are people and people are great and people are capable of offering greatness regardless of where they live and uh I just think it's so freeing. It's so freeing. It lets us to yet again take a little mirror to ourselves and go, you know, what is ghetto to you? What what did you think ghetto meant? <laughs> indeed, indeed. And it's still it's still an uphill battle with a lot of a lot of folks. Not a lot, but some people have critique, which I think critique, I welcome critique, you know, because it enables a platform for discourse. Heated discourse. Heated, heated. I try to stay cool as a cucumber, you know, it takes, it takes a lot, a lot to get me hot. 
But Mel might know once once we flip, it's, 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 it's hard That's to That's that turn March around. 27th. That's that Aries, <laughs> baby. It takes a lot to get there. But if you do, you're like all the way flipped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, ooh. It's, yeah, it's, it's insane asylum vibes. <laughs> So good. That's funny. John, another kind of secret sauce you seem to bring to your work is storytelling. You seem to not just take all those strands that are happening with arts and culture and Afrofuturism and economies and disparities in the world, but you seem to have a gift I really do think it's a gift with storytelling because without the storyteller, people can't absorb all that information. Do you recognize that in yourself? Like, do you notice you're like, huh, I didn't know I brought that element, but yeah, I do. Yeah, like you said, it's a gift, right? Like my, my great-grandfather, I remember you mentioned you were talking about the lineage earlier. My great-grandfather was like a bishop and a community leader. And you know, a lot of the things I think I do are is me probably chasing his ghost. I've always been competitive with ghosts for some reason. But that's because nobody that's living is fucking with me out here. No, <laughs> like, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, de- I definitely think it's a gift. And I think for me, like we discussed like early, like I'm a visual and an auditory learner. So it's like, for something to stick with me, it's like, I need to know why I should care. Like a fact on its own for me isn't maybe enough. I need some c- context. So I think for me, it's like, providing the context for something to have legs and to be sticky and, and to be able to, to translate to, to many people. You know, I think you have to do the work. Like, it's not enough just to care about something. You have to be able to contextualize and articulate why it's worth caring. And some people might not care, but those in your tribe and those in folk might, like, have some type of resonance with whatever you're trying to convey. So I think it's important to make sure that you're dropping knowledge darts. What does make you care? Like, what are the things that really get you? Like, why? I think I'm a super sensitive and empathetic person. Well, probably more sensitive and empathetic. I'm working on my empathy. But I think I'm sensitive. And because, you know, with great, great privilege comes a lot of responsibility, right? So being able to, you know, see all of these different parts of life and how some people live and how others live. Like, like maybe it was a few months or a few weeks after I did a TED talk, my older brother got sentenced to 18 years in jail, right? So so kind of living in two worlds at once and like still like doing all of this stuff, right? But then still having very real life things that you think and, and no amount of work that I could do change that. Like I don't work hard enough to make a difference in my brother's decision making to be able to change that outcome, right? So it, I think it's like having... Like trying to be controlled, like I, I think I'm a bit of a control freak, but then understanding that I just wake up like Jay Prince had a you you have a chance and a choice, right? And I can just do the try to make the best choices with every chance I have. And you know, it's a struggle to live between those two worlds sometimes. Mm, I feel is. like I didn't answer your question, but <laughs> Yeah, no, you did. I mean, I'm just curious because, you know, for me purpose is big. You know, like what's your purpose? Because I know for you. I could tell that money is not enough for you, you know, like you'll get bored so easily, like been there, done that kind of thing. And you probably started making money really young, like selling drugs, you know, you were, yeah, yeah. you had that. And so I think it's not like, there's so many things I feel like for somebody like you and I, maybe this is the fact that we have the same birthday, but 
when you realize you can get whatever you want, if you work hard enough or long enough at it, then there has to be more for you to want it. You know, there's got to be a bigger purpose or a bigger incentive. So that's what I was just wondering. Like, is it like a legacy you want to leave behind? Is it that Mm -hmm. you want to, you know, like show that something can be done? Like if you can do it, then it can be done because you've defied so much already. Do you get high off of like inspiring people when you do that kind of stuff? Like, what is it? Because because you're you're such a leader in the sense that you like create these things and then you lead them and then you go off and like are on to the next thing. I think you took all of the words out of out of my mouth, but but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Part of it is is legacy and like yeah, having you know like I, I call it the revenge of the nerds. Like a lot of adults that are successful sometimes they might not have had felt the glow that or they think that achievement is gonna fill the void a gaping hole that's within them or that's been within them, whether they weren't accepted or they weren't cool in school or whatever those things. But because, and I had one of those holes like growing up, you know, I think not having, having a father and having abandonment issues, all all of the things, right. You try to, you try to um, compensate like, and and like you said, I became a very successful street pharmacist at a young age, like as a teenager making a lot of money and like understanding, like it's a level of, fame when you're like doing your thing in the streets that come so you feel a little bit of that right and then i caught a case and then you see everything get wiped away like when you're when you're not when you when you can't provide or you're not as useful to people you can see how humans could discard you and like this illustration or this illusion of who you thought you were based on what you had or what you do is just window dressing so then you have to deal with the internal so i think Having learned those lessons young, and I'm still continuing to learn them in different in different ways, gave me that like, oh man, I got to really figure out what, what what my time on this planet is about, or what do I want it to be about. And legacy is a part of it, maybe not in the traditional sense of like the last name and, and all of that, and but I think like you, you hit it on the head, like Nip said, the highest act of God is inspiring others, right? So being able to, and Pac said, I might not change the world, but I hopefully I inspire someone that does. It's, it's yeah, just showing the possibility because I feel I've never really lacked the confidence in my ability, what I could do, like you said, manifestation and putting in the work and, and the hours and stuff, like staying diligent. I don't feel like there's a limit. Once I decide like to do the thing, it's going to happen. So I just want others, others from similar backgrounds, similar environments to tap into their same power for, for the betterment of the, of the community, of the world as a whole. Because for me, my cipher is like, all right, I wake up every day thinking about how do I become the best version of myself, first for myself, then my immediate people, my loved ones after, my colleagues, the Bronx, the world. You know, but I know if I'm not doing the best for myself, not, I can't be the best for anybody else. So I love that. That's so, so cool. True. We've been talking a lot about peace, right? Like world peace. And how it starts on the inside, like it starts with inner peace, like you having peace with yourself and like creating your own world and then being that world in the world. Look at that. Look at look at Mel dropping bars. (laughs) (laughs) Do you believe in world peace? Yeah, I would love to see it. Like, like I think, like you said, I think, you know, there's a lot of hurt people out here and a lot of people dealing with trauma that or having trauma that hasn't been dealt with. And what I, I am hopeful because 
I feel like just in the last five years, like we have a lot of language that we didn't have before. Like I, I have people that I would have never, ne- never thought of talking to me about therapy, talking to me about doing therapy. And I'm telling people about mindfulness and meditation and you know what I mean? So I think with that, like I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty hopeful that, that we did, you know, but it's, it's tough with capitalism, right? Cause it's always, it's always going to be a loser. When, when you're operating in these binary type of systems, it could be tricky, but I'm, I'm still optimistic. Do you have a sense of, I mean, if we look that big about how grassroots movements spread, what would be a catalyst or some of the prerequisites for a global piece? What do you think has to happen first? I think some type of global equity, right? Like, like if people are hungry and starving and don't have basic needs or other people have see-through yachts, like, that's violence, you know? <laughs> I don't have the solution, right? But I think if people's basic needs are met, you know, and what to determine a basic need is. But I think that's, like, the first thing that probably needs correction, right? <laughs> Just, like, people having the basic, basic human, you know, needs. Like, like, we created economies out of things that are, like, supposed to just be free, <laughs> you know? It's like we're the only organism on this planet that pays to reside on it, <laughs> you know? Or, like, that pays for food and stuff like that. So it's just, it's just different things that... And I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer because we're so invested in the systems that are intact. And I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm maybe a little skeptical or cynical in the ability of those things to be ver- reversed overnight, you know. So I'm trying to figure out what I can do, and maybe what systems I could test out and try out with communities that I'm a part of within the capitalist system because I don't see it overturning in my lifetime, but. Yeah, I think I think dealing with those bits will, will you know, because if your stomach is rumbling every night, like you know, you're not caring about global warming. You know, it's like hard to care about anything else but what you're dealing with. You know, well, part of that too is I think we're so we've outworn every possible system that doesn't factor everybody in. So if you know if we don't have a global vision, if all people aren't factored in, how in the world can we change? It doesn't include everybody. And until it includes everybody, how can we start to create some equanimity and balance and feed the people everything that they need, whatever that looks like? You know, I don't think we've ever gotten out of our self-interest before. And uh, that would be powerful all by itself. There it is, that UN in the Bronx, that's the one. Dropping, <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this because I came and y'all, y'all hitting me with, with the gems. Like, you giving me a lot of food for thought and I won't leave the dishes behind. I'll do them, trust me. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's just when you were saying, like, I don't have the answers to that, like something like the extremes of wealth and poverty where there's some people on see-through yachts and then people that can't afford food, right? You know, I was talking to my cousin and she was saying how she was making the differences within her company. And it really kind of blew my mind because I I didn't know how I could contribute to that. But as individuals that have our own companies, like basically you've created a movement with Ghetto Gastro. Like that's it's like a it's an establishment. And then literally operating it like a world 
like a, a micro world. So for example, she was telling me how she went through all the things that she believes in, um, like equality of men and women, extremes of eradicating the extremes of wealth and poverty. And then she figured out how to mirror those in her business as a structure. So for example, with like the wealth and poverty issue, she set a salary cap for all her like C-level employees or like whoever was at the top that um, regardless of how large the company grew, that they wouldn't get paid more than whatever amount that they established would be enough for them to live comfortably so that they could use the excess of that money to help balance the inequity in the world, essentially. And I thought that was so cool. And I, and it's just like a really great exercise to think about, like, what are the things that I believe in? And then how can I create those as like a way to run my business? Because, I mean, I never learned anything about business from a traditional sense. You know, I didn't know what I was doing when I started and I've kind of created it along the way. And I know that you've done the same, like we've kind of like taken bits and bobs from places on the outside and just kind of like, you know, hybrided them together. And it's like, ta-da. <laughs> Building a plane as we fly in it. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> That's like, a great without, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I like that. I like that. Like, like starting. And I think it goes back to when we just spoke about mindfulness. It's like, you have to start doing it from within. So whether it's a corporate entity, whether it's a person, it's like, yeah, you, you got to really practice what you preach at in these streets. Yeah. And figuring out what it actually looks like when you've never seen it modeled before is really fun in a way. Like, it's interesting. Like, how can we model this? And maybe it's kind of also the same thing, John, that you were saying earlier, you know, it starts with yourself. Mm-hmm. And you get that solid and then you can start to look at who's around you and, you know, what you can change. I think one of the things that we trip ourselves up with is thinking that we have to do everything all at once. And I think that that always ends up in the same place, (laughs) you know, because that's not new. (laughs) Um, But we have to go slow. I think we have to give ourselves permission, just like nap time at work. You know, we have to give ourselves permission to take it slow. I've received, I'm, I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down for sure. So. It's so hard when everything's so fast around mm. you. You just got to slow the game down. So you used to play ball a little bit now, right? You got to just let the game come to you sometimes. So like when I, when, when things get overwhelming, I just try to remember that mantra. Like, all right, let's go slow to go far. I love that. I really love that. That's good. That's the human pace. I think that's the real, real, because I think all the technology has given us the illusion that we're supposed to become like it. Mm. And uh, I think that's how we lose touch with each other. And and we don't have to please technology. Look what happened to us today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we had to we had to go slow and yeah. figure it out. You know, headphones and speakers like, like that. <laughs> yeah, but we got your light right. We got the sound right. The light. You, know, you got the glow. Yeah, you're glowing. It's abundance. That's that. That's that, <laughs> that Lucille sun. Yeah, you got that Lucille sun. I love it so much. 
John, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm super, I'm super, so much gratitude and I'm honored to be, you know, given a platform that to converse and convene with you beautiful humans. Yeah, you know, there's something about you I love and it's like anytime I talk to you, I don't know why, but afterwards I feel at ease. Like, I'm just like, everything's going to be fine. Like, we got this. <laughs> because you do. Yeah, but you put, you really put that out there. I don't know. There's something about the way you carry things that really makes you feel like, oh, we're good. Like, it's almost as if, like, you can, I can take my time. Like, it's fine. I, it's abundant. Yeah. It's abundance out here, you know. It's all here for us to shape and create and enjoy. So. Yeah. Thank you for reminding us. Yeah. Well, thank thank you, and, and let's connect sooner than later. Yeah, sounds good. Michelle. Much love. Okay, love and you, John. You. Peace, yeah. Peace. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>